0: We can get started, so get ready to have your eardrums <laughs> first. Okay, I believe we are live, and we are very live, and we are live. We are coast to coast uh, today in the U.S. I am located in California, and our guest is joining me from the other coast. Um, that being said, this is meetup number 66 for the data on Kubernetes community. It is meetup number 66. In reality, it's over 70, but we are, we're not so good at counting. We're good at other things. And it's interesting that it's number 66. We can think about Route 66, which doesn't go from coast to coast, but still gets this sort of you know transcontinental vibe. Um, as usual, if you're not following us on, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, please check us out. We're really easy to find. We're putting out tons of content, putting out lots of artwork, putting out lots of different things. We've got tons of meetups planned um, between now and KubeCon. Um, hello to everyone who's joining us. Um, you can always feel free to leave your comments in, in our chat here on, on YouTube. Our guest today eh, just celebrated his birthday yesterday, so I don't know how we're gonna sing this. if We're gonna do it in English. If we're gonna do it in Spanish. We can do it in the chat. But please give a massive happy birthday to uh, to Daniel. All right, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it as well. I want to be the first one. Um, our guest is no stranger to Kubernetes, lives and breathes it, um, and is involved in, with Kubernetes in a lot of different ways. Curious as to how that started. Um kind of multi-role the an interesting question will be how do you have time to do cycling and all the other things that you do in the outdoors that we like checking out on Twitter? Um Daniel Mangum, very, very nice to have you. You're at you're with Crossplane, you're with SIG release. You have a really cool T-shirt on. What company is that? What's up, man?
1: Uh, the the company I work for is is called Upbound, and uh, the the founders of Upbound are the founders of the the Crossplane project. Um, so so they kind of bootstrapped it, uh, and then we donated it to the CNCF, um, and and now we have a a kind of service around that, uh, which which we'll see later
0: on in some demos and that sort of thing. Very very good. That being said, and you know, and once again, happy belated birthday. How did you get started in all this? What what was the book that you read? What kind of cereal did you eat for, for breakfast? How did this happen? Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually
1: um, really enjoy talking about this because a lot of folks um, uh, did a lot for me to be able to uh, get involved early on. Um, so so my kind of story of coming into Kubernetes is uh, while I was uh, still in school, uh, I started contributing to some open source projects uh, around like infrastructure and container orchestration and that sort of thing. Um, and so... I was, I was knowledgeable of the space, uh, to some extent, at least. Uh, and uh, when I was finishing up my last year, uh, there was the KubeCon uh, 2018, uh, which is in Seattle, I believe. Um, and I kind of was keeping up with it uh, from, from my dorm. And uh, I saw the announcement of Crossplane. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. Um, it's open source. So I guess I can just go and contribute to it. Um, and so I started doing that. Uh, and shortly after I, I finished school um, and started a, a different uh, position, uh, I was in St. Louis, Missouri at that time. And I was just working kind of nights and weekends on Crossplane. Uh, and then the folks at Upbound uh, asked me if, if I'd like to join the company and work on it full time. Um, and so I did that. And around that same time, uh, I actually went through the um, Kubernetes release shadow program. So uh, I know a lot of folks are, are familiar with it at this point because it's such a great program. Uh, but essentially, every Kubernetes release cycle, uh, you can apply to be a shadow. Uh, and there's a variety of different teams uh, that work together to, to make a Kubernetes release happen, uh, which, is, which is quite a feat these days. Um, and, and so I applied to, to be on that. And I was fortunate enough to be selected. Um, and uh, I went on the CI signal role, uh, which is kind of folks that monitor um, the health of our, our tests and that sort of thing. Uh, and I just kind of kept coming back for, for each release uh, and, and moving uh, forward in, in responsibility and that sort of thing. Uh, and then uh, took some, some leadership positions uh, in C-release after that. Um, and that really was, was how I was able to get really deep into Kubernetes and, and all the while uh, I was working on the crossplane project. Uh, as well, so so that's my story, and I highly encourage folks who are interested to get involved to go through that that shadow program. Uh, it's definitely uh, had a huge huge impact on me, and and there's lots of uh, wonderful caring folks uh, in that community. So would highly recommend.
0: That's a great story. Um, I'm I'm lucky enough to to participate in the the contributor experience meetings from time to time, and and different things like that, and it's amazing to see all of the, the 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 international stories the things that are happening all the different ways that folks can contribute as well too and we always insist on this to, to everybody who's out there you don't have to be a seasoned practitioner with 20 years of experience to get involved like I, I was it what's the prerequisite positive attitude be friendly right. that's it like that is literally it um and you're a good example of that both on the technical side and non-technical side in some ways being so young too uh we can maybe say that you're Kubernetes native um an interesting comment that you made in a in a podcast I was listening to to kind of get prepared for this, um, you differentiated, you know, a lot of times Kubernetes being referred to as an orchestrator. You refer to it as a distributed systems framework. Can you unpack that a little bit before we get into the to the presentation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I, I don't think I'm I'm necessarily a, a revolutionary in referring to it this way, but I think this is is a a kind of movement that lots of folks uh, in the cloud native community are starting to see. Um, so. So you know, folks are very familiar, typically, with Kubernetes extension mechanisms, uh, operators, uh, custom resource definitions, and, and there's countless other interfaces that you can plug into as well. Um, and so, it it provides an an API server and reconcile loop, right? That that is really valuable outside of just container orchestration. So um, you'll hear folks say things like, "It's a distributed systems framework that was first used for container orchestration," um, and as we're going to see today, when we talk about crossplane. Uh, Crossplane is all about uh, managing and provisioning infrastructure uh, via the Kubernetes API. Um, and so that's that's definitely different from container orchestration. But you have a similar pattern, right, where you have a desired state of your infrastructure, uh, and you want to continuously drive towards it. Um, and you get a lot of things for free out of the box by building on top of Kubernetes. Um, and so in some sense, uh, depending on you know what the scope of, of your project or product is, um, you, you can kind of eliminate the container orchestration altogether, right? If you're not running a workload on that cluster, you don't even mm. need those pieces. Um, so I know there's a lot of projects, Crossplane being one of them. Uh, there's been a, a lot of kind of talk recently about a project called KCP, where folks are trying to basically take Kubernetes and... Um, I like to say they're trying to break it into a spectrum uh, of functionality where you can say, I need the most stripped down thing where I just get the kind of uh, control plane pieces of it all the way to I need full-fledged container orchestration and all the features that come with that. Um, So that's generally... Um, kind of the the way that I see folks moving, and I think in the future, and you you know you've already seen this with projects like K3s that skip down, strip down uh, Kubernetes uh, for specific use cases uh, that have become wildly popular. I think we'll just see more and more of that uh, yeah. as the community moves forward.
0: That's a great point because for so many folks out there, a lot of times it's very overwhelming. And so, and with 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 you know we've done lots and lots of of, of these live streams, so we hear from from folks saying. You know, you don't necessarily need all that. Maybe what you really need is just this. So how can we sort of, uh, you know, make that, make that more specific and more direct and so that you don't have to worry about, uh, because you know, when we talk about developer experience, does a developer, you know, suddenly have to become an expert in all these different areas? Well, hopefully not. In some ways, because if not for, for an organization an organizational level, that's what's interesting too. You know, when they talk about the cost of Kubernetes, it's not just cloud costs; it's the human factor of how can I get my talent, you know, sort of onboarded with all these different things and the amount of time that's going to take. Um, so, a lack of human power sometimes is really the, a bigger deterrent than the a sometimes daunting cloud costs that's good stuff I think also what you're what you're saying there is and whether it's with kubernetes or any technology really is a sort of fluid evolution with a lot of these things that how we're referring to something now you know in, in a few years may change and that's okay it's not the end of the world what happens is that some people get really staunch and, and stuck into a, a certain a certain viewpoint um I, but I think that the more conversations we have them and and also particularly with interacting with folks from all over the world of realizing that you know, together we're moving in a certain direction. And, and like I said, that, you know, the way in look, which we look at things in one way at a certain point will change. And our community is very much based on that idea because in the early days of Kubernetes and Borg, this idea of, you know, stateful applications, stateful workloads, databases, was kind of just like, no, no, it wasn't designed for that, but little by little and see more use cases and how it's done and that it can be done and what it makes sense and the opportunities and positive benefits that can be achieved by doing so that that's when it starts to make sense um that being said uh once again just a reminder to our audience you are free to ask questions um in the chat you're getting several shout outs for us happy birthday um but other you can you can feel free to ask you know what kind of birthday cake Daniel had but uh what, let's let's get into the presentation and then we can get to those questions later on
1: awesome that sounds great um yeah th- th- thanks for leading that kind of intro there Bart I think that's uh a really useful segue, actually, to what we're going to talk about today, Good. Uh, especially around uh, some of the stuff you were talking about. Uh, you know, developers shouldn't have to uh, to know uh, everything about what's happening under the scenes. They need to know what what they need to do to get their job done. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here, and I'll I'll let Perfect. you confirm that that you can see it. All right, That's I can, great. I can. Awesome. All right, let me pull up my speaker notes behind the scenes here. All right, so. Um, I've got my whole spiel here, but I think we've done a pretty good uh, introduction uh, at this point. Um, so uh, as Bart mentioned, I am pretty young in the industry, um, but uh, I'm, I'm a bit nostalgic. So I, I like to say that uh, I'm always jealous of folks who have been uh, in the industry for, for quite a while um, because uh, they have an experience that, that I haven't had. So I like to do kind of uh, a lot of um, looking back on the computing industry and how it's grown over time. Uh, and we're actually going to start off today uh, with doing that so i'm gonna i'm gonna begin today and in this this talk is really going to be focused around software distribution and how it's evolved over time so we're going to start off with a bit of a history uh, of how that's happened uh, and i should probably have the caveat that this is an extremely simplified uh history so if you all want to post corrections to anything that i say in this first part uh, in, in the YouTube chat, please feel free to do so. Um, but we're going to give kind of a quick overview of, of what it's been like. All right. So we're starting from the very beginning here, the very first general purpose machines. So the first early computers required actually physically modifying the hardware to change its functionality, right? So you actually changed, you know, where a wire was plugged into an outlet on the machine. Um, and so software, if you want to call it that in this setting, uh, was a literal list of instructions that someone was you know, highly trained to implement to reconfigure this hardware for a specific purpose. Uh, so needless to say, uh, this was not a very robust system for distributing software. Uh, instructions were specific to a single machine and required specific domain knowledge that was not really transferable uh, across the very few machines that existed at this time. So uh, shortly after these earliest general purpose computers uh, came the concept of a stored program computer, which you may you may be familiar with. Uh, and so what you see here is the Manchester Mark I, which is widely regarded as the first stored program computer, um, though, for, for a bit of a history anecdote, uh, the Manchester baby actually came before it. Uh, and it was uh, kind of a proof of concept of, of what the Manchester Mark I became. Um, So the idea of a stored program computer was that those instructions that were previously, you know, written down in a manual to reconfigure hardware, uh, could themselves be stored in a computer's memory in binary. So thus, if the computer supported functionality to write to memory, a computer could theoretically be used to program itself uh, and... You, know, you may know that our computers today are still, in fact, stored program computers. right? We, we store the instructions uh, in memory, uh, and then the operating system will, will execute them for us, um, or the CPU. Uh, so it's a powerful idea that stood the test of time, absolutely. Um, but in these early days, the instructions for one machine were still uh, very drastically from another. Uh, so software is still not very portable. All right. So the next phase, as com- computers uh, continue to evolve, um, they began to be applied to more and more use cases, right? So, uh, in addition to to more and more domains being uh, uh, addressed by by uh, programming computers, more and more folks were also programming computers, and programs were becoming more complex. So instead of re-implementing common functionality in every program, uh, operating systems were invented to provide a consistent interface to hardware, uh, eventually across somewhat heterogeneous machines, you know, as we see today with our operating systems that, that run across uh, lots of, of different computing systems. Uh, operating systems also added the ability to manage multiple programs, users, etc., uh, and kind of provide the glue to connect them together. Uh, and these operating systems eventually became sophisticated enough that a program could be written to program the computer itself, uh, once again, kind of taking advantage of the stored program concept uh, and, and something we do daily today. Um, so software at this point was becoming uh, more portable and easier to implement. The next big kind of milestone um, that that made a huge impact on access to software was the advent uh, of the internet. So the internet obviously allows computers to communicate with each other, um, greatly expanding the scope of what a computer program itself can accomplish. Right. So you can share information across machines. Um, this is how you know I, I'm presenting over a live stream today. Uh, but because programs are once again just a form of data, uh, once again harkening back to that stored program concept, uh, they too can be distributed on the internet. Um, and so. While before many programs had come in the form of magazines or handbooks and had to be manually programmed into the computer, we began to move towards a reality we know today of just being able to download software on the internet and run it on our machines. So kind of jumping forward a bit, uh, when we introduced those operating systems back a few slides uh, that provided some additional functionality to our programs, we inherently created programs that depended on the operating systems, right? We had those shared libraries that were acquired by our programs now. So we needed the ability to run software uh, that targeted multiple operating systems uh, on the same machine. And we also wanted the ability to run isolated processes on the same hardware. Uh intervirtualization, which had been thought of many years before this time. Uh, but VMware actually kind of commercialized it in the late 90s uh, with their VMware Workstation 1.0, which this is kind of a, a fun screenshot um, from that software. Uh, and it gave us the ability to convince software, if you will, uh, that it's running on a certain type of machine. Uh, but we have to pay the overhead penalties of startup time and performance with that uh, having that virtualization layer um, in between. But definitely a powerful concept that, that underlies um, you know, lots of the, the cloud software that we use today. So the next phase is software became uh, fragmented into smaller and smaller programs. You might call them microservices. Uh, Paying those virtualization costs for each process no longer made a ton of sense. So instead, a lighter weight isolation boundary in the form of namespaces and cgroups were introduced into the Linux kernel uh, and similar functionality in other operating systems as well. Uh, And this allowed for processes to share an operating system but have different access to its capabilities. Uh, This greatly reduced overhead in terms of startup time, uh, and importantly, the distributable software artifact was much smaller uh, due to us, you know, encompassing a smaller part of the whole system in the artifact. Um, The trade-off here uh, is that the isolation boundary was much weaker, is much weaker. Another important thing that happened a few years after the introduction of containerization, Uh, Docker and other companies have built tooling and infrastructure around building, sharing, and running these distributable artifacts. Uh, And this is why container image registries, runtimes, and tooling uh, are ubiquitous across the industry uh, today. And we'll be using them them quite a bit uh, in our talk and demo today. All right. So that's kind of an evolution, uh, once again, extremely simplified one that's gotten us to now. So I think it's important to think about as we've seen these steps we've been uh, going down, uh, what are we searching for here? Uh, if we're trying to move towards a goal, it's nice to define that. So this is just my interpretation uh, of the direction the computing industry has gone uh, and where we're trying to, to still reach. Um, and we'll talk about why we, why we might not be there yet. But essentially, I think we're looking for two attributes in our software distribution experience, uh, efficiency and flexibility. So efficiency being the time and effort it takes to move from discovering software to running it in production. And that last part uh, is really important. Uh, A great getting started experience is absolutely useful and important. But if it doesn't translate into a great production experience, uh, then you're really kind of lying to the user, right? And they're going to be bit by that later down the line. And the second component that we're looking for is flexibility. So if my system and architecture uh, that I'm running my software within changes, my experience running the software should not be degraded. Um, So uh, in a lot of ways, we've made a lot of progress on the first uh, and debatably uh, on the second. So how have those different phases that we just enumerated, uh, how have they contributed towards these things? So the ability for computers to store programs in memory uh, means that we can, you know, use a single machine for for lots of different functionality. Um, And the advent of of operating systems uh, means that we can, you know, run processes alongside each other and switch between them and communicate and have a consistent interface uh, to the hardware. Um, The internet obviously makes software easier and also makes the functionality that programs can achieve uh, much, much greater. Uh, virtualization brings that uh, software interface that we require and makes it more portable, right? So we can virtualize multiple operating systems on a single host. Uh, and containerization uh, shrinks that overhead, right, for, um, for the ability to run multiple processes on a single host. Uh, and it also uh, creates smaller artifacts for us to distribute software with. All right, so this sounds pretty great. Uh, maybe I can just wrap up the presentation here. Uh, unfortunately, there's something uh, I left out. So, uh, you know, we, it would be really nice if all software ran on a single machine, uh, but unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, and this is evidenced by the advent of the cloud. Um, and if all applications ran on a single machine, we, we might not have to continue to uh, innovate, um, although I'm sure we'd run into our, our own problems there as well. Um, but we, we face a couple of constraints as software has grown and systems have become more complex and robust. Um, and as those business cases have become more and more complex, um, we've had to uh, add machines, add different services. We've seen the advent of infrastructure as a service, software as a service. and um, These are all to address things like scale, cost, and complexity uh, constraints. And the cloud pro- providers know this. Uh, Over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen an explosion in the number of managed infrastructure and software services uh, that are available to us on the cloud. Uh, And they're all billed as, quote, do this extremely complex thing with just a click of a button. And and that's great. That's really good. This is a huge innovation uh, that is obviously widely used uh, in the industry. And it's a fact that these services have rapidly advanced the pace of software development. Uh, And even someone who's a little bit grumpy about the cloud like me, uh, I have to acknowledge that the cloud-managed services are responsible for much of the innovation we see today. Uh, these services were introduced right to, to eliminate complexity. That was one of the constraints we just talked about. Um, and they've really done that at a micro level. Um, I'll be honest with you, uh, I don't know all the internals of how Postgres uh, works. Uh, however, I am able to run a production Postgres database uh, for you know, a fairly widely used service um, without, without much trouble. Um, so that's definitely a huge optimization of complexity on the micro level. Uh, however, at the macro scope, uh, they've really introduced a lot more complexity. Uh, so, with so many options to choose from, platform architects find themselves with difficult decisions on how to integrate all these different services together. While still maintaining those two goals we talked about, right, that, which was efficiency and flexibility. And there's another side to this equation as well that being the software vendor. So, vendors need to build software that can run in a countless variety of architectures, uh, which allows customers to adopt their product with minimal friction, right? Um, so, we want that efficiency aspect and, and the flexibility to run that in all of these different architectures uh, that can be composed uh, from these different services. So I really want to zoom in on on these two roles that we just alluded to there, uh, one being the builder and one being the architect. So we'll start off with builders, which uh, I'm referring to software vendors here. Main question we're trying to uh, answer as a software vendor and myself working for a software vendor, uh, how do I deliver software that fits into all of the varied architectures of our customers? And we have a few kind of tried and true options here. Option number one uh, is software as a service. And if you can do this, this is great, right? Because you don't have to integrate your software into folks' environment. You give them an API line, an interface, whether it's an API, uh, whether it is a UI, whether it's some type of console. Um, and, and and you can basically tailor the environment that software runs into your needs, and they just communicate with it um, over the internet, right? Um, However, this is obviously not appropriate for all types of software and it's certainly not appropriate for all types of businesses. And I know that everyone who's watching this who works for a software vendor is nodding their head uh, along with me uh, that there are plenty of customers that are not uh, able to to use SaaS products. So option two would be in-depth implementation services. So this is basically taking your software and every time you bring on a new customer, uh, molding it to their use case. So um, you know, from a, a cost perspective and profit perspective, this can be, uh, you know, a viable strategy for a large enough customer. But overall, it's, it's a low, low time value trade tradeoff uh, for a software vendor business. Um, and so if you could reduce that, even if it makes economic sense, it would make uh, more economic sense, right, uh, if you didn't have to have in-depth implementation services. Uh, option three is the lowest common denominator, um, so that's basically taking your software and stripping it down to mostly just interfaces, um, and saying something like, you know, I need a SQL database, uh, but I'm placing that onus on the customer to get that database in place, make sure there's connectivity with it, um, and and you know, make sure my application can interface with it appropriately. Um, so once again, that's making your software more flexible, but you're now reducing the efficiency, the other side of that equation. All right, so now moving on to the architect side, uh, architects being platform teams within an organization. Um, And the question we're trying to answer on that side is, how do I build a platform that reduces friction for developers while keeping it simple to integrate new services into the system? Once again, there's a few options here uh, that have been widely used to varying levels of success within the industry. So option one, uh, we're calling open a ticket. Uh, so this is kind of the, the old method of saying, uh, if you need infrastructure, you open a ticket and someone on our team will provision that and make sure it's up to all of our standards, make sure policies are in place, and then we'll give you a method to connect to it. Uh, this is obviously very slow because it's human in the loop. Uh, it's resource intensive in terms of humans are expensive. Uh, and it's error prone uh, because uh, you know communication is not automated. Uh, it's happening uh, via ticketing and that sort of thing option two, uh, which is potentially equally as bad is developers own their own infrastructure. So this is what, what I mean by this is specifically uh, you're giving developers the key to literally own you know whatever they want to create within a cloud provider or you know using on-prem services or something like that. Uh, This obviously leads to huge sprawl of services, uh, and it's difficult to estimate costs. And you're also putting a burden on your developers to understand all this infrastructure, uh, which they really shouldn't have to do because they have other concerns, right? They're developing uh, applications and that sort of thing. And then option three, I'd say is the best option here, and that's a custom layer two cloud provider. So with sufficiently large organizations, they'll actually essentially build their own kind of platform on top uh, of a cloud provider. Uh, which is really great. If you have the bandwidth to do that, that is awesome. If you have the, you know, financial means to do that, that's great. Um, but it does require a large number of dedicated engineers. So it's not really accessible to something like a startup. It's not accessible to a mid-sized company. Uh, and even for a large company, it's extremely expensive and incurs a lot of maintenance. So how have we gotten around some of these issues? Uh, well, uh, as, the, as the title suggests, uh, we've invested in orchestration and a common API for that. So the last few years, we've seen the rise of Kubernetes to orchestrate the software across different machines. Um, and it's become kind of a consistent API for deploying software, which makes it possible for vendors to package their software uh, with an expectation that customers will have a Kubernetes API uh, to use as the deployment target. Uh, but didn't we just enumerate all the benefits of the cloud provider managed services it kind of seems like we're eliminating those here, right? Because the Kubernetes API doesn't allow you to create an RDS instance on AWS or uh, spin up an S3 bucket or something like that. Um, so, so yes, uh, this process is divorced from the clean and consistent API uh, we've developed for compute workloads, referring to Kubernetes there. Um, and so in a way, Kubernetes is our lowest common denominator. Uh, vendors are saying our software can run on Kubernetes and customers are forced to connect the software uh, with its required dependencies based on their architecture, which usually requires kind of an out-of-the-loop process to provision that infrastructure, uh, whether it means logging into a console or using an infrastructure as code tool or something like that. So as an example, uh, many software products require access to a database. The vendor may distribute their software via a Helm chart that allows for referencing a Kubernetes secret with credentials to that database. But then the customer is responsible for creating that database, making sure it's configured properly, making sure the network allows access from the software and ensuring credentials are up to date along, along with countless other things that I, I don't have time to enumerate here. Uh, but bottom line is this is a lot of work and it's the, this method of the, the vendor putting more of an onus on the consumer, which is obviously not great for the customer uh, and definitely not good for the vendor as well uh, because customers are going to be less likely to, to buy their product. So what we want to do is raise that lowest common denominator. right? If we have this consistent API, how can we make it work for all these use cases, including provisioning the infrastructure that our software depends on? So you might have guessed, I'm going to say, that cross-plane uh, is a way that we can address that. Uh, and and folks at this point have usually been exposed to cross-plane in some form or fashion. Uh, and, and it's usually something along the lines of, oh, I can now provision infrastructure from uh, Kubernetes. And it usually looks something like this, uh, using something we call managed resources, where we basically take custom resource definitions, which are an extension mechanism for Kubernetes, uh, and we reflect uh, all the different cloud provider APIs in your cluster. Um, So just how we are talking about how a vendor might give a customer a resource bundle in the form of a Helm chart or customize you can now include the infrastructure that the application depends on. So you can say, you know, I, you're know, you going to need an RDS instance and a VPC, so I'll just stick those um, into my Helm bundle. And so when you install that, uh, your, your cross-plane instance is going to spin up that infrastructure. And this is good in the, in the um, aspect of that it provides a single workflow for deploying software and all of its dependencies. Um, so you're not having this kind of disjoint process of going and provisioning the infrastructure then provisioning the software, and then making sure they're connected, Uh, it is all happening together. So that's definitely uh, a benefit. But there is an issue with managed infrastructure, um, and that's that it's not quite as homogenous as compute workloads. Uh, Cloud provider APIs are high-level and highly differentiated, and raising that abstraction level means that we're further away from, from common ground to be able to target infrastructure, right? Um, So on the last slide, we saw an RDS instance and a VPC, which are both specific to AWS. Uh, And a vendor of any scale will have customers with multiple cloud providers and and multiple configurations with on that cloud provider. Um, So offering just an AWS option for running your service is certainly not enough. Uh, And even offering a deployment model for every cloud provider is not going to be enough because folks are going to be using those cloud providers in, in countless different ways and styles. Um, So what we're seeing here is the ability to deploy managed infrastructure via the Kubernetes Kubernetes API is only accomplishing half of our goal. So we've gotten our efficiency here, we've got the single workflow, but we're lacking flexibility. So Crossplane's solution to the problem is what we call composition. Uh, This is a mechanism that allows infrastructure to be described abstractly with one or more concrete implementations. So it's similar to the idea of polymorphism, where you interact with the object by describing its attributes rather than describing its implementation. Uh, and despite my love for, for cross-plane, this isn't revolutionary. Uh, we're just taking the same strategy that cloud providers have and putting the tools in the hands of the architects and vendors, right? So this is the same thing that's happening internally at, at cloud providers. Um, and, and we believe that, that folks that are within any organization should have the same ability to define... Um, An abstraction with with implementations of different infrastructure behind the scenes. And I know this is a bit abstract at this point. You can see the different database types that are satisfying a database uh, in in the deployment here. But I promise you that we're going to get a little more concrete as we go along. uh, And we'll also have some demos uh, of how this works as well. So stick with me on that. So I want to go back and revisit uh, our builder and our architect. Uh, and we've been talking through the lens of the vendor for the past uh, couple slides here. So this time, let's start off with our architect. Uh, and you'll remember that one of our options as an architect was to build our Layer 2 cloud provider. We kind of said how, how that was a, a good mechanism if you could do it. The drawback to that approach was that it takes a lot of time, effort, and maintenance. Uh, so CrossPlan allows you to leverage a ubiquitous API, that being the Kubernetes API, that's likely already implemented in your organization. And it gives you all the features that the cloud providers themselves use internally. Um, so now you're able to define abstractions for developers in your organization. So you get the efficiency of allowing developers to self-service while maintaining flexibility and changing implementation details behind the API line. Uh, once again, we'll see this in a bit, but in that case where I've defined a, a database, uh, if the developer is used to interacting with that database, I can swap out what's actually happening behind the scenes when they provision a database uh, and they have the same experience because we've established a contract there. So Crossplane can also be arbitrarily extended for your existing custom solutions and requirements. Uh, so that means you'll never find yourself locked in uh, to a technology that doesn't work for you. Uh, this is especially important with folks that use a lot of on-prem services or custom solutions for uh, provisioning infrastructure, um, and so if that's you, uh, crossplane can definitely be extended to go beyond cloud providers or go beyond different services um, to to do whatever you need it to. Uh, the other aspect of this, right, is you're able to leverage uh, a rapidly growing open source community uh, while still having an option for commercial engagement support if your organization needs that. Um, and and you know before we got started with this presentation. Uh, Bart and I were talking a little bit about some of those features that you get from Kubernetes as a distributed systems framework. Uh, One being drift detection, uh, which uh, that's really speaking specifically to managing infrastructure, but we have this reconcile loop, right? Um, So the advantage here is that instead of just provisioning your infrastructure, you're also making sure that infrastructure doesn't get out of sync. You're making sure that policies are enforced. Uh, You're able to manage uh, relationships between your infrastructure uh, even if they're on different cloud providers, right? Because we have this single API where you can say uh, an RDS instance and a network on GCP, despite living on different cloud providers, can have some sort of relationship because they're both represented as Kubernetes objects. You also get policy enforcement and we integrate with other projects like Open Policy Agent uh, as well as Access Control, which comes out of the box. Uh, in in Kubernetes. So lots of benefits from being built on top of Kubernetes. And what I'm driving towards here is you're actually no longer building uh, a layer two cloud provider. You're actually building a control plane. Um, So your control plane goes beyond a cloud provider and that it's not just saying that you can provision managed services. Uh, It's also saying that you can configure them. It's also saying you can bundle them. It's saying that you can present abstractions on top of them. Um, and, And when you do that, You have a a single place to get uh, things like cost estimation. You have a single place to get things like metrics. You can get a full overview uh, of your organization's infrastructure and tech stack, Um, and it all goes through a central point that can be arbitrarily extended. So moving back over to the vendor side of things, uh, this common control plane API uh, as folks adopt it, as end users and organizations begin to adopt it, Uh, This is a a huge benefit for you, and it makes your life a lot easier because instead of just delivering your software, you deliver control plane components. Uh, This means that you define the interface that you need. You need a database, and you may even provide some implementations, maybe an RDS instance on AWS, a GCP instance on on Cloud SQL, or maybe even an in-cluster instance, which I know some folks in this community uh, are interested in in doing data things on, on Kubernetes. Um, but customers can modify the implementation or bring their own all together, right? So you've just said, I need this interface. If you want to put in your own implementation or, or modify our implementation, you can certainly do that. And our application will respect it regardless because it has agreed on this contract once again. Uh, importantly, though, we don't want to throw out all these practices that has led to great software, right? We enumerated the phases uh, that have led us to great software distribution, um, uh Story today, uh, and so this means we want these these components to be version controlled. Uh, when applicable, we want them to be open source. Uh, we want them to be robustly tested, right? Uh, and yes, we want them to be easily distributable. Oh, we so got let's... we got a
0: question. We got a question. Oh, go ahead. Um, this is super cool. So just to make sure I understand correctly, Crossplane provides a more declarative way to define a desired infrastructure state that acts as a contract um, between the user and the vendor.
1: Yes. So so uh, as we'll see in a bit here, um, it acts as a contract between uh, the person uh, deploying the software and infrastructure uh, and the person uh, and the satisfying party. So that could be something like the cloud provider. So in this case, the platform team may create a contract that the developer is on one side of uh, and and the platform team is on one side of. And that would be within an organization. There's also this other side, right, where the vendor can provide their interface and say, you can just inject this into your architecture, right, um, and kind of use the interface that we've defined and build on top of it. Uh, in which case, uh, the vendor and, and the uh, platform team would be either side of that equation.
0: All righty. Perfect. Cool.
1: Yeah, keep those questions coming. I told Bart that I I like to be interrupted. So uh, if more come up, definitely jump in there. And when we have the demo later on, there'll be some great opportunities to do that. Yes. (laughs) So we're going to move on to talking about how this distribution actually happens. Um, And uh, it happens uh, via packages, which are a cross-plane concept. Uh, So starting off, uh, container images, as we talked about, um, kind of when we were talking about containerization and Docker, are the most successful software distribution mechanism in the modern era uh, and so from a crossplane perfect perspective uh, we stole them we said this is a great way to to distribute software why would we why would we do something new right uh, folks already have this set up folks already know how to interact with this um, so we're going to reuse this awesome functionality then stand on the shoulders of giants um, so cross packages are essentially simplified oci images uh, which means that uh, they consist of a single layer Uh, with with YAML content in it, essentially. Crossplane treats that as a YAML stream and interprets that and sets up your control plane with these interfaces that we've been talking about, as well as implementations. Also runs controllers that are necessary to interact with the cloud providers, and we'll talk about how that architecture works a little bit more. But the important thing is you can build and use and host these packages today uh, because they're built on this ubiquitous distribution uh, technology. So if we look a little more into the anatomy of a crossplane package, we have two different types of packages in crossplane. One being a provider and one being a configuration. So a provider is kind of the lowest level and it encompasses what we call managed resources which are our Kubernetes CRDs that represent one to one the API of a cloud provider. So you'll see our instance here which we've already alluded to a few times as a cloud SQL instance. Uh, And and a couple of examples of providers we have are AWS and GCP. And there's also, uh, it doesn't have to target a cloud provider, right? We have provider Helm, which means that uh, it talks to a Kubernetes cluster, either the one it's in or a remote one. Um, And you can deploy, um, you know, Helm charts uh, via the provider, uh, via Crossplane and compose those into higher level things, as we'll see in a moment. Um, And the other thing that's encompassed in a provider package is a reference to a controller image. So Crossplane essentially will look at the package contents and it'll say, hey, I need you to run these controllers, which are in this image. Crossplane will start those controllers and have them reconcile uh, instances of the CRDs that are installed and also make sure that different controllers aren't reconciling the same instances and that sort of thing. Configurations, on the other hand, are kind of the, the layer two here. And they define abstract interfaces. They're mapping to those underlying managed resources, as well as dependencies on other providers and configurations. Um, and so we, we define uh, our interfaces with what we call a composite resource definition, which is frequently shortened to XRD. Uh, and you'll, you'll see the similarity there with a custom resource definition. Uh, so this is going to look a lot like a custom resource definition, as we'll see in a moment. Um, and, and it really defines the API, right? The, and it results in a new type that developers can actually create uh, or install via Helm chart or something like that. And then a composition, there may be uh, one or many compositions for any XRD. These are basically the things that say for this abstract type that I've defined, so maybe a database, this is the mapping that takes place from the API that I've defined to the underlying implementation. Uh, in this case, we'll say it's a Cloud SQL instance. So once again, uh, we're a little abstract here, and we're going to keep going into packages. But rest assured, uh, at the end, we're actually going to build some and push them and show how this all works. All right, so just how we can compose those managed resources, um, we can also compose the configuration packages themselves. So this is kind of a a picture of what it could look like within an organization uh, to to build a platform API for developers to self-service on. So at the top here, we have a control plane package, which has dependencies on a databases abstraction package, uh, as well as clusters. Those clusters depend on VMs, which are once again an abstraction uh, on two different providers at the bottom, one saying provider GCP and one what we're calling provider on-prem, which you know may, may target some uh, dedicated infrastructure that the organization has. Um, and then you can also see that these intermediary uh, configurations like databases and clusters can depend directly uh, on providers as well. Importantly, as we'll see in a moment, uh, to actually get this configuration, uh, you only install that top level package, my control plane. Uh, and Crossplane will work out the dependencies, make sure the versions are correct, uh, and, and make sure that the, the API surface that you're interacting with is exactly as you specified. So, this is great from the organization perspective. Where does the vendor fit in, right? We, we've talked about how this is beneficial to both the organization and the vendor. So what the what the vendor is doing, right, is delivering and integrating a product into an organization. Um, so the vendor, in this case, will package their software uh, in the same format that a control plane is already built with at, at an organization, right? Uh, and the customer adds that product as a dependency because it's just a package. So in this case, uh, we've got Cool Vendor here, which we'll be using throughout the rest of the presentation. They're my, my favorite company. Um, cool Vendor provides a database. Um, and we already have a database abstraction in our organization. Uh, and let's say since it's based on provider GCP and provider on-prem, we have you know, an on-prem database solution, uh, as well as a Cloud SQL, which can both satisfy our database abstraction. Here we're just saying we now have a dependency of my database that brings in this cool vendor package which is their own database offering uh, and it in turn could even depend on some of the providers we already have so uh for instance um let's say cool vendor once again has a, a database uh, service that can be deployed on gcp uh in virtual machines um Here, we can say, we depend on provider GCP. And as long as we have compatible dependencies, we're able to introduce that new service into our tech stack, right, into our platform API, which means that developers can now create a database that is satisfied by the cool vendor flavor of database. Um, And and we're very easily able to introduce this. And we'll see how this resolution happens uh, automatically. Uh, sometimes it's not that simple, right? Sometimes your your package uh, that you've packaged as a vendor is not going to fit into every organization. Maybe they don't use GCP. Maybe they use some cloud provider that you've never seen before. Well, because these are just made of YAML, right? You can go in and edit them. So either the organization or the vendor themselves can, can develop a custom solution, which we talked about kind of being a bad thing with those in-depth implementation services. But in this case, it's a really lightweight process. Uh, that could that could potentially be done in minutes, uh, with you know domain knowledge of of the service here. So in this case, I'm demonstrating instead of provisioning GCP VMs, we're targeting the My VM abstraction that this organization have, and using that to satisfy uh, how our database is deployed from from the cool vendor vendor. All right, and then this last slide here uh, is just talking about how you could do this without actually mutating um, the, the cool vendor database. Uh, and I'm doing this with, uh, a example of cool vendor adapter here. This is basically the organization saying, um, I'm going to keep, uh, what the, what the vendor has provided, but I'm going to introduce my own composition. So they have an XRD. Uh, I'm going to introduce a composition that's applicable to my infrastructure. um, and then let, let the provisioning flow through that. All right, so we've gone really fast here. Uh, we've covered a lot of stuff. I want to jump into a demo though, because this is going to make it uh, a lot more real for us. Uh, and as always, uh, I love doing live demos. So uh, we'll see if the, the demo gods have mercy uh, on us today.
0: Mercy, mercy. We do have one question. Uh, we, this is about the future of Crossplane, so maybe it's better after the demo. Go ahead, go ahead, do the demo. All right, sounds
1: good. Um, Like I said, if folks want to jump in uh, at any point and ask questions, please feel free to do so. Um, All right, so I'm going to be using Upbound Cloud for this demo. Yes, I work for Upbound, all the usual disclaimers. Uh, The reason why I'm using it is uh, like we were talking about with uh, the different spectrum of using Kubernetes as a distributed systems framework. uh, Upbound will actually give you a Kubernetes cluster with Crossplane installed that just has the bits that basically you need to be able to use Crossplane. Um, and so it's really easy it's hosted for you um, you can also connect your own but we're going to be using the hosted offering today if we click on our control plane here which is once again just a kubernetes cluster uh, with cross plane or, or a bounce distribution of cross plane installed you'll see that it's totally empty um, so i want to go over and take a look at how we could start to build up that diagram that we were seeing in the slides so starting here we have our organization and you'll see i have all of my different uh packages uh that are present uh in in that diagram so we start off with the control plane at the top and i actually don't have any abstractions in here i just declare my dependencies on the clusters and the databases Uh, and in my database i have a dependency on gcp and then this is an xrd our composite resource definition that we were saying defines our interface for folks to interact with Uh, And here, just like we do with a a custom resource definition, uh, we're defining what the schema is. So in this case, we're saying, when developers create a database in my organization, uh, I only want them to be able to specify the storage size. Everything else is dictated according to policy. Excuse me. And then I create a composition, in this case just one, but we may have many, and we'll see many shortly, um, that maps that to an underlying type. So we're saying we satisfy our database type with a Cloud SQL instance here, and we're taking those parameters that are on the abstract type and mapping them to the underlying Cloud SQL instance type, and then we already have some hard-coded values here that we're saying you don't get to configure that. So essentially what this gives you the ability to do is, is provide whatever interface and whatever level of flexibility you want to your developers. So I'm gonna go ahead. We, we,
0: we do have a question. So okay. the the blue components in the diagrams are the actual Kubernetes CRDs, and the blue components are abstractions that crossplane handles and maps to the actual CRDs that are defined. So the the
1: blue components are our provider packages, uh, which encompass CRDs uh, as well as the the code, right, to reconcile those and, and talk to the external API. So when we install uh, a, a provider package, we'll see uh, CRDs for that provider are present, uh, as well as pods are started up uh, that are reconciling those CRDs. Good stuff. All right. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and connect up to my control plane. I have an upbound cloud, um, and it's in my DAN org here. And we'll see it there. Uh, and I'm going to use my API token to connect to this by doing my kubeconfig git command. um, And we want it for this control plane. And I'll pass the token from standard in here. And we should see that we now have access uh, to a a cross-plane cluster running here. And you'll see the cross-plane components. Um, And this is the exact same thing that we'll see uh, in the, the UI here. So we don't have anything installed. If we try to look at packages that we have, you'll see that we don't have any. Um, and so before we actually started this talk, I went ahead and built all of these packages uh, and we'll show building them again uh, momentarily as well. But uh, when you build them, we have a registry on Upbound Cloud. You can also use uh, Docker Hub or whatever registry you use internally. Um, And I've pushed these up. So I've pushed uh, v0.0.1 for all of them. Um, And if we want to actually install these into our control plane, we can go to the upbound registry. You could also do this via cube control if you wanted. And I'm just going to install my control plane into my cluster here. All right, and we'll see here that we get automatic dependency resolution, uh, first of the immediate dependencies of our cluster, and then later on of the dependencies of those. right? Um, So in our control plane here, all we've said is we depend on my clusters and my databases. But when those get installed, Crossplane is going to say, oh, I see you also depend on provider GCP. You also depend on provider Helm. And you may even have shared dependencies. right? So both the databases and the VMs uh, uh, depend on Provider GCP. So as long as they have compatible versions, uh, we can go ahead and install those. So these are all now present here. And if you look at something like Provider GCP, you'll see that we have a ton of different resources that we can provision. Uh, For instance, our, our Cloud SQL instance here. And these are actually represented as CRDs in our cluster. So you'll see all of our different types here. You'll also see that we have CRDs that represent uh, our own abstractions. So we have our database abstraction here. And we can see that our composition is also present. So if we create an instance of our database, um, which I will show in a moment, we would actually uh, get that rendered out into a Cloud SQL instance that would be provisioned on, on GCP. So we've built kind of our control plane API. Uh, Folks can start to interact with it. What we want to do is pretend we have a vendor that we want to introduce um, into our control plane, just like we did on the slides. So I'm going to check out a different branch here. And let's see what's changed. You'll see that we now have a a cool vendor uh, directory here that has their composition. So this is a third party vendor that we want to integrate. Uh, Also, here is what our our database would look like if we wanted to provision one. Uh, And if we look in our cool vendor package, we're going to see that we depend on provider GCP and provider SQL, just like we enumerated um, here in our our diagram. So since uh, provider GCP is already present in our cluster, uh, we should see that just provider SQL Uh, is introduced. But how do we actually bring this package into our control plane architecture? Well, this is going to be a dependency of our database abstraction. right? We already have a database abstraction present. It goes to Cloud SQL. We want to add the ability for it to spin up a cool vendor uh, database as well. Uh, And so we want our our cool vendor package uh, pushed up here. So I'm going to go ahead and pretend that, once again, cool vendor is going to be under my org here. And I'll show you how we can actually just build uh, this cool vendor package. So let me go into that directory configuration. um, And I'll show you quickly what's in this composition. We have uh, an abstraction for our, our database type for cool vendor. And then we have on GCP, instead of creating a Cloud SQL instance, we're actually creating things like an instance group, Uh, and and an autoscaler, and a a database from Provider SQL. And these are kind of the components we use to create our cool vendor database. And we'd also need to obviously install the software on those virtual machines as well. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and build this and push it. So you can do that with just a few commands here. I should build it before I push. All right, and we should see this uh, X package definition here, which this is actually just an OCI image on disk. And if we do up x package push, uh, and I'll do Dan cool vendor, we'll see that this is now present um, in, in our repository. So now, if we want to introduce that uh, into our control plane, we need to add a dependency at the appropriate point. So I'll go into databases here, and you'll see that I've already added it as a dependency. Uh, And and this is a configuration dependency rather than a provider, right? And so now I'll go into database. And let's go ahead and build it. Once again, we see it spit out there. And I'll do push. And we'll call this one my databases v0.0.2. My databases. All right. And if we hop back over into our repository, we see again here v0.0.2. But this hasn't been introduced into our control plane, right? Uh, because from our control plane, we only installed that top level My Control Plane package. Um, so we need to update our dependency uh, on My Databases, right, to include this new thing. So you can think of within an organization, you might have a database team that's in charge of incorporating uh, this new product. Um, And and so they may publish a new version of the database package. um, And then that can be included in the overall control plane. Um, And so we can show this by, let's take a look at our packages here. And I'll make this a little smaller so we can see it. Uh, You'll see we have all of our configurations as well as all of our providers. Um, And I'm going to edit our configuration package here for the overall control plane. And I am going to actually, I'll just do it directly to the database in this case. Let's do uh, Dan, my databases. And instead of 0.0.1, we are going to update this to 0.0.2. And Crossplane is going to go ahead and pull that new version and see that it has an extra dependency. And if we actually look back in our control plane, you're going to see that our cool vendor configuration is now present uh, as well as provider SQL, uh, which it depends on. It looks like that's still installing. But now we have the ability from our same database abstraction uh, to just go in and change this to say cool vendor. And next time this database type is applied alongside an application for developers in our organization, it can be a cool vendor database Uh, instead of a GCP database, or maybe that's even obscured from them. And we as a platform team uh, define what that looks like. So this has been kind of a a pretty complex demo. I'm I'm guessing there's probably some questions in the chat, um, but I hope this gave uh, a bit of an overview of kind of some of those things uh, we talked about um, and some of the power, right, of having this control plane API, both on the side of organizations uh, as well on the side uh, as vendors.
0: Very, very good stuff. Um, what, one comment, someone saying, I really like the idea that these packages are OCI compliant. I'm just curious, is that a recent thing? What's, what's kind of the, the contrast or the difference there? Uh, they've always been
1: uh, OCI compliant in that you can, you can Docker push, pull them if you want. Um, they can go to any registry, which we've definitely seen users really pleased with because most organizations, uh, in my experience, uh, run their own private registry. Uh, Which just means that, you know, if you don't want to go through the outbound cloud registry or Docker Hub or something like that, uh, you can
0: pull private images for these packages and that sort of thing. Very good. And then another question, where do you see crossplane in five years? I love thinking about Kubernetes purely as a helper for building control planes, but it adds quite an overhead to run, but it doesn't add a, you know, quite an overhead to run and maintain. What about managed crossplane?
1: Yeah, so... I guess that ties in. Well, uh, because we have a managed cross plane right here, Ooh. Um, but, uh, so, so that's definitely a future uh, I think we see. And, you know, I guess putting on my upbound hat for a moment, um, you know, from, from an upbound perspective, we don't want to run a full Kubernetes cluster if, if we're not offering it, right? Um, and so we we definitely look at and implement ways to to use a more slimmed down uh, Kubernetes. Uh, one of the things that's important to keep in mind though, which uh, I, I like to remind folks of when we have this conversation of stripping down Kubernetes, a lot of the value uh, in the extension mechanism is that you can kind of run, you can still run arbitrary compute workloads So for instance, we still have to be able to run pods here, right? I still have pods running for each of these providers, for instance, that are making sure when I create an instance that that gets created externally and that sort of thing. So uh, I think uh, kind of alluding to what we were talking about earlier, uh, I think the benefit is going to be to to create a system that's modular uh, that allows folks to put just the pieces together uh, that they want and making that a really seamless experience. Uh, to do that and, and also host it and things like that.
0: Good stuff. Um, with that in mind, we are right at the hour at 10 o'clock. There are some other questions, but I think we'll, we'll handle those in our Slack, um, cool. just so we can continue the conversation there. If you don't mind, Daniel, can you stop sharing your screen? Because we have a little bit of a tradition sure. that we do here, regardless of whether or not it's your birthday. Um, so while you've been talking, we have an amazing artist, uh, Angel, who is located in Spain. And um, he, uh, in, in the north of Spain, the best country where I normally am based and we will be back there uh, on Sunday after a wonderful uh, two weeks here in California. But uh, can you see my screen? Yes, and that is awesome. Good. So that while you were talking, awesome. we got the color scheme from cross We got a lot of different things. I will kind to use a skateboard. I didn't bother to tell him beforehand that you were a cyclist, but that's okay. I'm sure you probably skateboarded at some time in your life. You're also very young, so you can do these things. Um, and we also got you know, the happy birthday mentioned there too was very, very important. Um, anyway, Daniel, this was super, super good. And there are a lot of other questions that come up on a technical side as well as a non-technical side. I really enjoyed the historical progression that you showed, showing um, those great photos, the arrival of Tim Berners-Lee on the scene, (laughs) and how we kind of got to where we are right now. And thinking about, you know, you're 25 when you're my age, 35, the different kind of reflections that you're going to be able to have at that point to see where we will be in 10 years from now. Um, You did talk a little bit, you know, briefly about crossplay in the next five years. Kubernetes. Do you think that we will see more sort of I don't want to call it, I don't know if I want to call it fragmentation or segmentation or you know com- making it com- compartmentalized or stripping these things down. Do you see that as a growing trend?
1: I, I think so, um, and, and I think we'll see more and more use cases um, for Kubernetes, um, specifically around uh, providing the APIs and potentially non-distributed system settings. Um, so uh, thinking about. Uh, you know, single machine, basically the simplest way to get that API uh, and interact with it. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's going to be an exciting time. I think there's a lot of folks uh, that are working on this, uh, a lot of really smart folks. So I'm excited to see where we go as a community. Um, and, and I'm excited that, that it's inclusive where we get a lot of voices in there. Um, so I, I think that the next few years, uh, now is a good time to, to get involved with Kubernetes um, because there's going to be some big, big, exciting changes coming.
0: That being said, you know, we do have a fair amount of young people in our, in our community, and I'm sure you get ask this a lot, but what recommendations, what are the things that have, what would be your, you know, quick do's and don'ts of, you know, these are things that work for me in order to get to where I am and maybe some things that you might caution folks against.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say uh, the most important things are uh, to be a, a kind person. That's number one, um, you know. There are, there are lots of smart folks uh, in the world, uh, lots of smart folks in the cloud-native community, uh, and what, what will set you apart is the way that you treat other people, uh, and that's going to be way more important uh, than anything else. Um, that being said, uh, you know, it's also important to, um, to, to you know, grow your technical expertise as well, if that's what you're interested in. Uh, and the, you know, the number one way uh, for me to be able to do that was to actually find problems uh, and try and address them. Uh, you know, you can study and learn uh, all you like, um, but it's really going to force you to dive into some deeper parts that may not be in a curriculum per se, um, if you're, you're trying to solve an actual issue. So I'd encourage folks to, uh, you know, build little side projects that do something specific on Kubernetes that they feel like it's a rough edge, I would encourage you to look in the Kubernetes code base or, or ask folks or look at open issues and say, uh, you know, is this something that I can try and tackle? Um, because I think you'll, you'll grow faster um, by, by going that route than just trying to, you know, study a bunch of content and that sort of thing.
0: That's a great point. Do it in a community environment, you know, be be involved, get other people involved, bounce ideas off, to, off folks. Like you said, investigate things, look for problems um, and raise people's awareness about it. What I always recommend to people as well. I was actually talking to somebody yesterday about this is that if, if you can do a little bit of homework, read the documentation, find something specific to say, Hey, I was looking at this particular thing. I always find that's a much better way of starting a conversation than saying, hi, help me, or I want to learn this show show us that you made a little bit of an effort and also what you said though attitude above everything um more important um and like you said i really like how you f- phrased it as well of it's about how you treat people which sounds so far and distant from anything technical but it's so important um particularly as we're going through the challenging times that we're going through as as a planet as a global society i think a little bit of kindness goes a long way um and you're a great example of that at 20, the age of 25. It's amazing. Um, anyway, we will be having you back. Um, we will definitely be having you back. So uh, don't go, don't go away. Uh, <laughs> and we'll get we'll get all this stuff uploaded. And like I said, there are definitely some other questions that are that our interns wanted to get to. Um, so they'll probably be contacting you on Slack about that. Um, for everything else, you're pretty easy to find on Twitter. I linked the the plane. Uh, web page in here. If folks want to jump in the Slack there um, to get more involved, I think you'll probably get some, some new folks in there too, because of today's talk. Um, Daniel, thank you very much for your time. And it was a pleasure having you look forward to having you again soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm more than happy to come back anytime.
0: Okay. Well, I will, I will be taking you up on that. So be careful what <laughs> you wish for, no, uh, that's great. <laughs> but, and I hope you're able to enjoy your birthday with some other fun things planned this week. Look forward to seeing more pictures of the outdoors and, and cycling where you're at. And uh, anyway, have a great day.